local delivery, um, which provides 100% zero emissions local delivery service in um, the city of Portland. You can visit Nosa Familia, which is a really delicious coffee shop that has, I believe, three locations uh, in the city of Portland uh, in the downtown area. Um, or you can check out Bevo Portland, which sells stainless steel water bottles uh, designed for athletes, um, including cyclists. And then lastly, uh, we have the summit, um, the Oregon Active Transportation Summit, which is happening um, next week. Oh my goodness, it's coming up. Uh, so each year, the summit hosts hundreds of professionals and advocates from Oregon and Southwest Washington to discuss cutting edge transportation issues. Um, we have keynote speakers, uh, Lynn Peterson, the Metro Council President is going to be speaking. And let's see, this year, the guiding theme for the 2022 summit is our transportation future. Tickets are on sale now. Um, you can find out more about the summit at our website, which is streettrust.org. Um, it's starting April 25th through April 27th. And um, yeah, you can buy your tickets through our website. Cool. The last thing Henry wanted to impart on KBU listeners is that if you've been thinking about transit advocacy and climate justice, now's the perfect time to get involved in that work. Everybody is aware that we've been in an unprecedented couple of years um, in terms of you know, how people's lives are defined by the pandemic. It's It's been um, really tough, but there are now way more people that are interested in things like um, climate change and sustainability and making it easier for folks to detach their lives from um, cars, which are a very damaging vehicle that we use um, for the environment. So if you're looking, if you've always wondered, like, eh, I want to get involved with bicycle advocacy or transit advocacy, or I want to make it easier to walk in my neighborhood, now's the time. Like the, the governments are listening and they're trying to make commitments or they're starting to make commitments. Um, but if you want them to follow through, like now's the time to get involved. Absolutely. Cool. Well, thanks so much and nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you as well. That was Henry Miller from the Street Trust. Again, if you're interested in attending the Oregon Active Transportation Summit, April 25th through April 27th, or if you want more information about the Move for Mother Earth Marathon on Sunday, April 24th, you can find that on their website at thestreettrust.org. Happy Earth Day, everyone. For KBU News, this is Maya LaPearl. You're listening to KBOO Community Radio, and we're in our annual spring membership drive. At KBOO, radio is our business, and you can help our radio hive thrive this spring drive. Just go to kboo.fm slash give or text KBOO to 44321 to make a donation today. Be sure to give by May 28th to help us reach our $56,000 goal. You're listening to KBOO Portland. This is a special Earth Day program, Unearth Oregon Together. I'm Althea Billings. In the next half hour, I have three interviews to share with you from local organizations dedicated to forwarding environmental goals. 
First, Kelly Stevens, the executive director of Earth Day Oregon. That organization teams up with nonprofits across the state who work to address one of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So what is Earth Day Oregon and how does it tie into the holiday? Earth Day Oregon is a statewide collaborative effort. We're all about bringing together nonprofits and businesses across Oregon to link up and create ways for people to engage no matter where they live in Oregon. So there's all sorts of different ways that people can do that. But ultimately, we really want to raise awareness and support for the nonprofits who work year-round on so many important missions in honor of Earth Day. What are some of the nonprofits you're highlighting this year? There are 70 nonprofits this year. We have doubled the amount of nonprofits outside the Portland metro area. So we're really excited that, you know, to be truly Earth Day Oregon, we need to involve all corners of our state. So we have, you know, several watershed councils over on the coast. We have Greater Health Canyon Council, uh, Wallawa Land Trust, and others in Eastern Oregon all the way down to Ashland and then plenty in the Portland metro area and, and surrounding areas in between. So what I'm really excited about is that we do have many conservation nonprofits and kind of those nonprofits that a lot of us would think about on Earth Day, but we also have a wider diversity of missions. We also have people who are working on you know, gender equality and improving our rural communities and economies, ending poverty, racial justice. We really recognize that we need all of these overlapping missions to, to celebrate action and, and take action on Earth Day. So I know that Earth Day Oregon highlights the UN Sustainable Development Goals, and I think that relates to, to what you were just talking about. Can you talk a little bit about those? Are there goals that are especially important in Oregon right now? Yeah, so the UN Sustainable Development Goals, there's 17 of them. They really represent a blueprint of sorts. Uh, and global partnership is the intention of them. And again, it's, yeah, it really is all about, you know, we need to address climate justice. We need to have clean air, clean water, and, you know, really take on a lot of these really big challenges at the same time to make sure we're creating a just and sustainable world for people and planet. So. I think in Oregon, there every single sustainable development goal is represented by our nonprofit partners. We ask them to check the boxes of which ones really align with their missions. And this year, all 17 goals are represented. So again, that can be anything from gender equality, ending poverty, imp- improving, you know, creating good, healthy communities, access to quality education. Um, you know, life above, let's see, we have life below water, uh, life on land. So I, I can't really isolate some that I think are the most important in Oregon, but I will say that I think they're all important. And I'm really excited that our nonprofit partners this year are part of creating that change, representing all of those goals. That was Kelly Stevens, the executive director of Earth Day Oregon. Next, I spoke with Candice Avalos, the executive director of Verde. Verde helps communities in Portland by building environmental wealth. Can you tell me a little bit about the history of Verde? Where did it all begin? Yeah, so Verde began originally as a program of Hacienda CDC, which is an organization that um, builds affordable housing in the Cali neighborhood. 
Uh, and from that program, it was like a green economy program, uh, it spinned off into what eventually became Verde. Um, so we are very place-based in the Cully neighborhood, but I like to say that um, Cully is a, a place, but it's also a symbol of the kind of communities that we work with, not just in Cully and Portland, but across Oregon. And it, we've really grown our reach to talk about these issues um, at various levels of government because we know that in order to make change in Cully, um, it's more than just, you know, city of Portland government that we need to work on policy. So um, over the last couple of years, we've uh, grown and changed a lot. We're about 16 years old as an organization, and our, our programs currently consist of outreach programs. We do a lot of leadership development. We um, do youth programming, youth education. Uh, we do naturescape um, programming. And then we have our energy, climate, and transportation program, which does a lot of our policy work uh, around air quality, water justice, energy, and transportation. And then lastly, we have a social enterprise, Red That Builds, which is a general contractor. And um, we used to have a landscaping program. That was like one of our original programs. Um, we closed that program in 2019 and transformed it into what is now Red That Builds where we work on building green infrastructure. So Red That Builds helped, for example, to build Cully Park, one of our uh, most notable accomplishments as an organization. And they do solar installations, um, ductless heat pump installations currently, uh, and lots of other green infrastructure work. Yeah, I was going to ask about how Verde's work has, has changed over time, but it seems you touched on a couple of those things. I think uh, the only other thing to say is just how much our work has spanned um, across Portland and Oregon, and we're really tapping into national networks to help ensure that frontline communities who are experiencing the harshest effects of climate change that we've all known for several decades were coming, but we're really feeling a lot more um, right now. And so uh, we're working um um, various levels of government to ensure that our communities are front and center, not only as voices in uh, leading the discussion and policy and change on that front, but also as recipients of those changes as our communities, low income, people of color communities have often been underinvested um, for, for climate resilience, despite being the most harshly affected. So I think that's really been how our organization has grown more into an advocacy realm um, whereas we started off more on the like more grassroots level and community engagement, and we still do that grassroots work, uh, but we've really expanded our reach on an advocacy uh, role. Gotcha. And what are some of the projects that you're working on now? Well, currently um, with Bread of the Bills, as I mentioned, we have a ductless heat pump program in collaboration with the Energy Trust of Oregon and the Portland Clean Energy Fund. We also, this past year, helped to pass the emergency heat relief bills through our energy, climate, and transportation program. And those were to, for example, deploy emergency heat relief to communities. Um, as we know, we are facing uh, increasing heat, and last year with 100 people dying from heat, we felt it was urgent to act on that ahead of this coming summer. And so, and then we also, uh, part of that bill was on renters' rights to cooling. Um, I know me personally as a, a renter, 
it is difficult at times to really not only have access to the resources, but even within your lease to be able to install um, air conditioners, for example. So we worked with um, different agencies to kind of just clarify and, and help renters be empowered um, and protected uh, in upcoming heat waves. So that's kind of our policy advocacy work on that front partners well with Reddit Builds, which has been working over the last year to install ductless heat pumps. And we're also working with PSAT this coming uh, summer to install um, air conditioners as well. Uh, that PSAP is uh, funding, you know, uh, hundreds of those to go out uh, before the summer. So those are two of our big areas right now. Um, our outreach program continuously works to engage community on various levels. We have a Lideres Verdes program, which is a, a training program for Cully community members to learn about advocacy and learn about environmental education and apply it. Um, and a really good example of the application of that is how we had a huge win um, as Owens Brockway, which is a uh, one of Cully's largest polluters and has been affecting the air quality severely um, for years. And we worked with those communities that we've been training up to, you know, help them use their voices in their community to push back on uh, Owens Brockway and push on the DEQ, Oregon DEQ, to ensure that um, they change and they, they either shut down or they um, implement something to mitigate uh, the harmful irritants that they are adding to the air. So um, we got that win this past year, and that's a good example of how our policy and grassroots organizing uh, connects in our programming. Part of Verde's mission is to help communities build environmental wealth. For folks who may not have heard that term before, what does it mean and why is it important? Yeah, environmental wealth, you know, we like that term because even though maybe it's a little ambiguous or esoteric, um, it encompasses so much of what we do. And um, the way we try to define that is whether that's um, working to build up the green economy, whether that's infrastructure such as tree canopies or parks or other green spaces or just helping um, our communities get access to resources um, through different um, levels of government and policy. Um, there's lots of ways that we're building that wealth and it includes, you know, those kind of tangible things like tree canopy and also those intangible things, which is just access to um, the, the larger conversation um, and ensuring that our communities are participating and can benefit from, um, you know, what is coming out of our climate resilience efforts. If folks are interested in learning more or supporting Verde, what would you recommend they do? Well, definitely checking out our website, um, which is verdenw.org. Uh, we're actually currently working on a website redesign coming soon, so I'm really excited to be able to um, show online just better ways that people can connect and um, better explain our story. Um, so keep a, keep an eye on that in the coming weeks. Um, and then that's a good way to just get to know our programming. You can get involved um, by signing up for any of our, um, for example, leadership programs, especially if you're a Cully resident, uh, and just learn about what we're advocating for so you can help us amplify those issues. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and thank you for all the work you do. Thank you. I appreciate it. That was Verde Executive Director Candace Avalos. Finally, I spoke with Mary Pivato, the Executive Director of Neighbors for Clean Air. How did Neighbors for Clean Air get started? 
So about 12 years ago now, um, I was actually, you know, not working at the time, but had three children in public schools, and I was looking for the farm to school lunch program, and I was doing the Google internet search, and instead came up with industrial air pollution in America's schools, and there was a study published by USA Today that had looked at um, industrial pollution and they had mapped across the country like 171,000 schools they had ranked for the exposure to industrial pollution. And you could put, it was a search engine, you could put your school, a name and town in. And so I just thought, oh, Chapman Elementary School, Northwest Portland, put it in. And I was horrified to see that it came up in the bottom 2% in the country, meaning the worst, you know, among the worst 2% in the country air, potential um, air pollution. And so I just started sharing that information with other parents and my friends and neighbors, and we um, organized around why that was around our particular school. And there was a you know one polluter named, one facility named, and so we organized around you know pushing them to clean up their air pollution. But I just the more I looked at it, and I thought you know, why does this exist in Portland, Oregon? At that time, 40 plus years after the Clean Air Act, I, I was really couldn't figure out why, you know, pollution like that could continue to exist in our communities. And so that's really what started Neighbors for Clean Air, is realizing that there's a systemic failure in the way we were regulating air and managing air that actually didn't necessarily protect health and so Neighbors for Clean Air was founded to address that more systemic problem to to make air regulations more health protective. What are the challenges that Oregon faces when it comes to clean air? <laughs> the biggest challenge is perception. The, the feeling that we don't have bad air. We don't have air pollution problems in Oregon. Um, and so that was probably the hardest headwind I had starting this because I knew that we needed to change. I knew that our rules were really underprotective and I had a lot of information about air pollution, the data showing that we had really dangerous levels of toxic air pollution in our city, especially Portland metro area. Um, But it's not the smog that you can see and it's not necessarily coming out of industrial smokestacks. It's it's more invisible pollution that you don't notice. It's coming from construction sites, the diesel engine, uh, um, the equipment that's used there. It's coming from our transportation sector of, you know, cars and big trucks. And and so it it's really the fact that air pollution was, I think, less visible, but not necessarily less dangerous. We actually have some of the highest levels of diesel emissions in the country um, in our communities. But I think as air pollution and air quality became more important or more visible as an issue, it still was being driven primarily by communities that had a large amount of homeowners maybe and you know, neighborhood association. That certainly was my, my community um, that have industrial sources in their, you know, in their community and in their neighborhood. And what I realized, though, as I got more involved and understood 
better um, the air pollution in our region. The highest levels of the most toxic pollution, especially caused by diesel engines, um, are in communities that are lower wealth, uh, possibly don't even, you know, English language, BIPOC, all the things that make an environmental justice um, community. And those communities just hadn't, um, didn't have the same resources to, to the advocacy. And so tackling the real highest risk air pollution issues has been a, a it's been first and foremost a, an exercise and an effort in educating communities about the problem of air pollution and the risk. I want to ask about that advocacy work in just a moment, but I'm curious about the diesel pollution you talked about. I, I saw some of the research that is on your website. What are the factors that have diesel pollution be so widespread and, and such a problem in the Tri-County area, and what makes it so harmful? So diesel engines are incredibly durable and strong, and they are uh, they're in many ways just embedded in our economy and our industry, and they certainly are a major part of freight movement. And so diesel in the Portland metro region is elevated, um, uh, particularly in areas where we have, you know, rail yards and marine, but it also is a big part of building things. And that diesel pollution, the thing about the equipment and the engines and the trucks is there are no standards that have to be met for that equipment. Um, you know, and the thing about diesel is the engines, they can last for a really long time. And in Oregon, we haven't done anything to kind of accelerate to newer technology. There is actually a lot cleaner technology. In fact, you know, the cleanest standard for um, diesel engines is, you know, was established in uh, 2010. So it's you know more than a decade old, um, and that would reduce diesel emissions. You know, the harmful parts of the diesel emissions by 90 up to 99 percent. So there are clean technologies, but the thing is, is that if you can continue to use an older engine and it works fine, there's not a lot of incentive to change it out. So that's been one of the biggest problems is that Oregon has really lagged our neighbors. California has established laws to, you know, basically make it illegal to operate older diesel technology in their state. Um, they've given, you know, a pretty big runway for transition to newer technology. Um, Washington state uh, doesn't necessarily have laws making it illegal, but they have a lot of incentives. They've, they've invested a lot of money to clean up certain sectors of their businesses. And so Oregon, in some ways, has actually, our diesel problems, it certainly hasn't gotten any better. And then, you know, there's evidence that we're actually taking in that we're the dumping ground for diesel, especially from California, where those the equipments or engines are being outlawed. And so they... You know, it's something that somebody here in Oregon can say, well, I can still operate that. It's perfectly good. I'm going to get a really good deal on a truck or a piece of equipment. So um, they buy it here. So, right. Expanding beyond that, can you tell me a little bit about the advocacy work that NCA does? What does that look like recently? So recently, um, we, you know, so much of it's education and outreach. It's really helping go into communities that are impacted the most um by air pollution and we still are also concerned about you know industrial 
air pollutants. There are there have been still some bad actors, um, frankly, that we've really needed to help educate community about what could be better. Um, and so we we do we work with communities to help them understand better the um, air emissions that are coming out of a facility, but also understand how facilities are regulated. It's really complex. The Clean Air Act I've learned is like the most complicated environmental. Um, system we have, but it's also the most health protective, human health protective system we have. So there's a lot of potential. But so, and that's been the same. um, So it seems easier to do that when there's a single factory and there's a community adjacent to that and they understand it. But we're doing, it's, we're been doing the harder work to go out and talk about diesel pollution and give people a, a better understanding of the risk of diesel, that it is probably the most toxic thing in our air. It's affecting everyone, um, pretty much in the, the, the tri-county Portland metro region. All areas have been modeled to have elevated le- levels of diesel pollution, and it is a human carcinogen. It's also linked to a lot of other respiratory and other problems. And cognitive, it has a lot of, um, a lot of recent studies have indicated it can really affect neurodevelopmental growth in children. Um, so we go out and we tell, you know, try and help people understand that this is something that you probably aren't even aware about of and is potentially considerable risk. And then we try and talk about the complicated ways, but there are ways to regulate and to reduce and mitigate the problem. And that it's, at the end of the day, there is technology. There, it is, this isn't a technology problem. There's technology that can solve the problem, but there's, you know, the political problem is how do we transition faster to that? And um, that's what we work with communities to, to talk about what those options are. We've, we've done a lot of work at the state level because most of this is all regulated, regulated at the state level. So in 2019, we were really excited. That was probably our biggest breakthrough. The, um, getting HB 2007 passed is a and it's a regulation that requires that basically will not allow owners of the older diesel trucks, medium and heavy duty trucks, to be able to register the older ones in the tri county area after there's sort of a phase in for the different ages of the trucks. Um, and that took a tremendous amount of education among people to get people who could, you know, come down and help give testimony about, you know, the problems of diesel in their community and, and talk to lawmakers and decision makers about that. So that's been a lot of what we do is educate. We, we work with school groups too, because so many, there's so much evidence of schools, the, the negative impact that a school situated near you know, air pollution. We've worked with Harriet Tubman students. We've worked with Lincoln High School students. We've worked with Roosevelt High School students um, to educate them about, you know, to become advocates for clean air in their communities because there's a direct link between air pollution and um, academic performance. So it's a lot of education. It's a lot of teaching people about the problem and the solutions. In doing that kind of work, do you encounter misconceptions about the importance of cleaning Oregon's air or about what NCA does? Yes, we do. And air quality, having clean air is a really popular idea. 
And so I think that the misconceptions sometimes are what's making our air not clean? What's not, what's making it not safe? And it's also recognizing that this really is truly an environmental injustice, um, that the issue, especially around diesel pollution, is has intersections with so many other injustices in our, you know, disparities of our neighborhoods and communities. Because oftentimes, you know, diesel is associated with heavy, you know, freight movement, heavy transportation corridors. It's the construction sites. It's places where there's low tree canopy um, and other built environment issues that, that make the impacts worse. So I think that um, elevating it to the level of prioritization that it should be has been maybe where I've felt the most frustration about um, considering the values and the ethos that we consider are ubiquitous here in Oregon that, you know, that we're pro-environment, we want to clean, you know, we want to be uh, a clean environment that I'm, I'm surprised sometimes that, that cleaning up the air doesn't get as much priority as it should. And, and I wonder and I worry sometimes that that's because the people most impacted are the people that are often marginalized. If listeners are interested in learning more or supporting Neighbors for Clean Air, how can they get involved? You can learn a lot more on our website, neighborsforcleanair.org. And also on if diesel particularly, we have a, 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 a site that you can get through either through our main website or separately, and it's whatsinourair.org. And there's always a, a donate button if you decide that what you can do is help support us to do this work. Um, that's really huge and important for us. And please sign up at the... That was Mary Pivato, the executive director of Neighbors for Clean Air. This has been a special Earth Day program here on KBU, Unearth Oregon Together. I'm Althea Billings. Thanks for listening. For years, Abraham Polanski's Force of Evil from 1948 has been considered one of the best films that you'll probably never see. Andrew Sarris called it one of the great films of the modern American cinema. Its unique stature was further enhanced by the fact that it was the only film that Polanski directed until 20 years later with the mostly forgettable Tell Them Willie Boy is Here. 
For Abraham Polanski was blacklisted soon after Force of Evil for being an unfriendly witness to the House Un-American Activities Committee. He had been nominated for an Academy Award the year before for his screenplay for Body and Soul with John Garfield, considered one of the best boxing movies.